This podcast is brought to you by the Specialty Produce Network. On the Front Burner puts two no-nonsense culinary professionals on air discussing tough industry topics, interviewing fascinating food personalities, and providing penetrating looks at the industry that we love. We don't always agree and often provide compelling personal insights from a unique combination of life experiences. You know, it's a lively give and take. It's by no means conventional. Elaine owns Sweet Cheeks Baking Company and is a winner of the Food Network's Cupcake Wars and Fabulous Cakes. A seasoned industry professional, she is a cake designer and a certified sommelier. Don is a chef, an award-winning journalist, and a culinary educator. Together we take a not-always-pretty, sometimes funny, and always-entertaining look at the world of food and beverage. Hello, I'm Don Williamson, and you're on the front burner. I'm solo today. Uh, My co-host, Elaine, is gone for today. She'll be back next time, and we sure miss her. And we're talking to Philip Epstebon, chef owner of Well-Fed. And you say, what's a Well-Fed? I haven't heard about it. I don't don't know what that is. We'll get into that in just a minute. But when we finished our last segment, we had Philip hanging out in New York City. And uh, I want to see how we got from... National City, to San Diego restaurants, to up and down the West Coast, to L.A., to New York City, and now back here again. So you're at one of the hottest restaurants in New York City, Philip. Yeah. And uh, you decide you're ready to come home? Yeah. Um, like, I mean, it's an expensive city. And so I knew I, I wish I could have stayed there forever. I always talk about it, about going back. Um, but just timing wise, uh, I knew I had to come back. Um, and it was really my last day in New York City. I was doing a stage at Maria, uh, two Michelin. Um, I mean, the, the kitchen was immaculate. Uh, I just remember prepping in the down kitchen, but going upstairs for service. And it was just like the classic, um, like I was, it was in hotel circle right on the lower part of, um, Central Park, and I was looking out the window, and you could see the New York skyline, the brick walls, and I was like, man, this is insane. Like, I'm just San Diego kid. I'm all the way out in New York just doing my thing, and uh, I, I made some amazing friends and networks that people I still talk to this day, and um, it really built this uh, work ethic where San Diego is very laid back, but New York is that New York minute. It's real, and so uh, when I moved back to San Diego, I was fortunate enough to open um, the Cork and Craft at Abnormal Company in Rancho Bernardo. Um, and so it's it was the first brewery, winery, and restaurant all under one roof. And um, I was the opening chef, and I was there for three years. Um, at, the, at the end of 2016, I left... Um, abnormal company in October 2016 uh and um I was fortunate enough to win critics pick chef of the year for San Diego uh sorry readers pick <laughs> and um and November 1st is when I started back with consortium holdings as the research and development chef and what does a research and development chef do 
Um, so we outlined when I took the position, we outlined three things that we wanted to accomplish: uh, reset company structure. Uh, well, sorry, first reset company culture, reset company structure, and then build from within. And so at this point, when I left San Diego. Um, consortium Holdings had only four locations. When I came back to San Diego, they ballooned up to eleven locations, and um, they wanted to help curate and and structure their hospitality and, more in particular, their restaurants. Uh, chef Jason McLeod, who's a great chef and mentor uh, to this day, that um, a- as we always said, like this is legacy time and. We wanted to kind of help build the group, and so um, with the research development, it it came with you know coming here to Studio Kitchen here in Specialty Produce. Shout out um, to R and D and develop Born and Raised and the menu that we were developing there, but also um, company culture in terms of you know Chef Jason is a chef for the whole group, and um, there's a lot of locations and a lot for him to visit. So. I was really his right hand man to kind of help uh, work with the young cooks and work with the young chefs and help develop them more in, in leadership roles. Um, when I was at Cork and Craft, one of my earliest articles that came out was um, my knack for leadership and education, and so um, they wanted me to bring that back with consortium and help them develop their young cooks and young chefs. And you brought this up earlier in the first segment of a lot of chefs coming in from all these other cities, and so we wanted to stop doing that and focus on local chefs and local cooks and build from within. And so establishing the current chefs, uh, resetting culture structure, educate and teach the young sous chefs and leads to become our next chefs as we opened up and expand versus outsourcing chefs. So it sounds like once again. For a lot of people, you had found your niche and you could have grown old and fat there. But no, what yeah. happened? Um, you know, truthfully, um, what happened was really, you know, as a chef, and I have a, a wife and two kids now, and, um, you know, I want to buy a home. And um, and there's a lot of other reasons, you know, but um, whether it's, it becomes monetary, whether it becomes family-related, whether you, you want to open up your own restaurant. The, the, what I call the next transition in my life was that I've gone from working in hotels to you know Michelin star to Tender Greens to Momofuku to everything, everything that you could possibly wish and do in the industry. And the only transition I haven't done was to ownership. And, um, and, you know, I think as we developed and it was a fortunate thing, it was a very transparent transition. I, I was very open with consortium holdings and chef Jason that, um, that I hope to open up my own restaurant one day and, um, they supported me. And even, you know, we spoke about this in October of last year. And they allowed me to stay on. You know, most places, if if a chef says, hey, I'm going to open up my own restaurant or I plan to, the owner will, like, fire them on the spot. But they kept me on. And, look, you know, they understand that that talent and chefs are very few in San Diego. And so they still needed my help. But also I still needed a 
a paycheck to come through to survive for my family while I worked out my own personal project. And I was fortunate enough to be able to sit down with Chef Jason and, and Arsalan Tafazoli, the owner of Consortium. And we would meet and we would talk about being an owner and what is it like with equity splits and how do you find funding and how do you develop a concept. And so, you know, again, it was just one of those fortunate situations that I happened to fall into that, um, again, mentors that helped me along the way. Okay. I think it's time. What is this project that we're talking about? <laughs> so uh, this project is called Well Fed in National City. It's on the uh, corner of 8th and B um, on 8th Street Corridor. And so it'll be part of a um, a mix, multi-mix unit uh, building that's 130,000 square foot. Wow. It has... Um, We'll be on the facade of 8th Street. And then B, there'll be four smaller kind of 600 to or 400 square foot spaces for uh, ground floor activation to activate the community, the walkability of the space, uh, along with row homes on the back, offices, and um, mix like units, like studios and apartments. Wow, that is a multi-use complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I will be a roughly a three thousand square foot uh, restaurant space on the down on the bottom floor. Okay, got to ask first that you don't get that with um, pocket change. No. How did you find funding for a project like that? Uh, well, actually, we uh, the funding is actually through some family business um, through networks over the years of just keeping in contacts, keeping relations. I think young people forget this, that networking over not just a certain period, but your lifetime. It's all about yeah. relationships. Yeah, you can't just burn bridges because you're not happy at something right now. You always have to be respectful and leave in the way that you should, whether it's putting your time in, putting in your notice. But uh, I've been fortunate enough to find investors uh, along the way that you know I've probably had opportunities to open up restaurants before, but nothing ever spoke out to me as much as National City. Okay. couple of things about that. Number one, you're not trying to go to Gaslamp. You're not trying to go to Hillcrest. You're going to National City. And number two, what type of restaurant are we talking about? Um, so National City is, uh, one, I grew up there. I grew up on uh, Plaza Boulevard and D. So this restaurant's actually like three or four blocks away from where I grew up. So this is, uh, the narrative is a lot bigger for me to come back home. Um, and if you look at the pricing, you know, North Park is about eight to $10 per square foot. I wouldn't even want to say Little Italy and downtown. Uh, Barrio Logan just two years ago was $1.75, but it's up to like four to $6 per square foot now. Um, and if you look at the landscape of San Diego, and um, the next kind of food areas or destinations. And if you find kind of the route where kind of where artists and designers and people go is the affordability. And so right now, National City, you know, a commercial real estate property is averaging a $1.25 per square foot. So if you're a young chef looking to open up your first restaurant or or anyone for that matter, um, like the, the overhead cost for startup is going to be a lot lower. When you're paying something at $10 per square foot, 
your revenue and your bottom line is going towards that. And so how do you, how do you create a restaurant that is sustainable? And so that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but um, if we're just talking about that, the visibility of me growing up in National City, uh, wanting to come back and do something in San Diego, but now in my own backyard. Um, and we're talking about opening a restaurant where you're serving Filipino food. Yes. Tell yeah. me about that decision. Um, so, you know, having been cooking now 17 years, it's uh, it's been this... Um, you know, I went to culinary school and I learned French. After culinary school, you kind of go in and you're, you're automatically um, a modern American cuisine, which, you know, if I opened up that, that's almost every single restaurant in San Diego. And most of those restaurants use Asian techniques or ingredients nonetheless. Um, but it now, you know, if I kind of look at what what I should be doing and with all these lessons and experiences in life, that um, what can I do with my own culture that um, that I could kind of help bring visibility to the Filipino community, national city as Filipino town. I'm not, I'm not sure if a lot of people know that. Maybe people think Marimesa because of the, the big uh, density of Filipinos that live there. But um, in all other major cities, you know where Chinatown is, Japantown, Koreatown. You don't really know where Filipino town is. It's because we're so adaptable that we could literally live and work anywhere. And we're used to, whether it's being relegated or just being comfortable and being the number two, um, most Filipinos are kind of in that role. And so I have an opportunity to, um, there's a lot of other chefs, so I don't want to take away from the chefs that are doing Filipino food and, and trying to make it move forward. But I think with my experience and knowledge and what I've been able to do in my career uh, and just kind of, not be in the mix and just kind of keep my head down and work the prototypical yes chef um, that kind of, uh, you know, uh, be part of the conversation now that just being part of the table. And tell me, do you see a market for, and I know you don't like to use the word upscale, but you're talking uh, elevated an elevated cuisine, Filipino cuisine. Do you see them? Tell me about the market you see for that. Yeah. I mean, for the elevated Filipino food, there's, there's like two or three restaurants in the country that are starting to do it. And they're, some of them are getting national acclaim. One of them in DC, Bad Saint, just one, you know, restaurant, um, uh, new best new restaurant in the country. And so there is a, a market for it, but I think the bigger market for myself and community is for young cooks and young people that look like me that are looking for opportunity that feel like they, they either they don't know or they feel like they can't, they don't know how to do it. And so um, a great fr- a friend of mine named Lamar Moore, he's African-American. He did a, uh, he had an article about him in Chicago Eater that read uh, more, more young black cooks need more black chef mentors. And that hit home for me as a minority, but for other people of color that don't really get an opportunity. If you look at all the other restaurant groups and either the owners and the chefs, they're usually Caucasian. And there's obviously nothing wrong with that, but I'm just saying that there's an opportunity for someone like myself that could inspire and drive the future as well. And that's great, and it sounds great. But do you think there's an opportunity to make money and be self-sustaining doing that also? Yeah, I, I think there definitely is. When, uh, you know, 
the project for me, I've never chased money. For me to be able to bounce around and work in the restaurants I did, it's obviously not chasing money. Um, and so money is a product of, of what you create. And so if it's something that you're passionate about and it's something that you believe in and it's an honest product that is authentic, um, that could speak to not just older generations, but the newer generations, I think this is where a lot of restaurants fail. They, they create something in the now versus how do you create something that in five years from now is how do you capture that next market and the market after that? And so... Um, what I hope to create is not just something for myself, but for all of San Diego and even smaller, the Filipino community. When they come into the restaurant, they see furniture, they see design that comes from their own culture that reminds them of something of home, and then the relatability of the dishes. And so, I mean, I don't know if you could name a chef in San Diego right now that is doing Filipino food that isn't like just the normal lowbrow food. And so um, there's always a gap in the market. And that gap in the market is right there in National City for this project. Yeah. One of the things I see about your project that I think is um, a stroke of genius is you say you want to open a, a Filipino cuisine establishment and you decide to do it in the heart of Filipino country. Yeah. So that certainly provides you a market. I think another important factor that I that I wonder about is that you still got to pull in other folks to make that sustainable. Yeah, I, I was listening to Lonnie Bunch the Third, who was the secretary of the Smithsonian and created the African American Museum in D.C. and he says that sixty percent of his clientele are African American, but they're able to survive and sustain because forty percent aren't. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, how do you create that education process for people that don't know Filipino food, that aren't familiar with Filipino recipes, that uh, would know one if they saw it on a menu? Yeah. Well, so uh, in National City, there's – well, San Diego as a whole, there's 20,000 Filipinos in national, in San Diego. Um, 20% still live in National City, but 90% have a connection to National City, whether they have family, friends, or someone that still live there. And so, yes, I think it'll be a predominantly based, like where, you know, like you said, uh, a high percentage will be Filipino. But I think the the draw of of everyone else from San Diego coming down to support it is going to really help bridge that gap. And so, um, you know, one like you can't you can't force education on people that don't want to learn and and so it's it's really just an art through the process um being being able to create a menu that um is again authentic but allowing myself to showcase techniques and things that I've learned over the year and the excitability of um, of this project in this, in its sense, you know, right now, what we're trying to do is this project is still about 18 to 24 months away. Uh, hasn't broken ground yet. Um, but over these next couple months is we don't want to come in and displace anyone. The average medium household in national city is 65 K a year. 
Mary Mesa is 120, Scripps Ranch is 150. So there isn't that disposable income in National City to really support something that we want to do. So price points going to be key. Uh, relationships with local vendors to get those price points. But over before we even open, we're actually in the community right now building relationships, working with the community, and helping raise the economy level so where we don't displace the people that live there. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And I know that you have a, a sense that gentrification is not necessarily a bad thing. But I noticed that when we talked, you talked about what the rental space was per square foot in Barrio Logan, what it's gone up to, and it's continuing to go up. Yeah. How can you raise that level without also raising that square footage and other costs, associated costs? Yeah. And so, you know, that's going to be the the trick. Like, you know, with new development comes with rising costs, rising rent. Um but, you know, the great thing about National City is that we lie in the opportunity zone. And it's a it's a fairly new law in the last five years, um, but it creates um, a unique opportunity for one smaller business, um, areas where are underdeveloped for new businesses coming in. So um, being able to create a an investment vehicle where you can save money on tax breaks. And so... There's a lot of avenues towards small business, minority-owned, in the opportunity zone, and actually even employing people from the opportunity zone that where the, the government will provide subsidized funding for employment. So there's, um, there's a lot of research and there's a lot of uh, new things that are happening down there. And so um, it'll be an ongoing challenge, um, but it's something that we're committed to. And it's something that as long as we're going to see this through, that, you know, it's not something where gentrification is bad, where you come in, build, and you leave. Like, we're we're in for the long haul. And uh, that's one of the big points that we want the community to understand. Good. Um, this may resonate with you. I just kind of want a reaction um, from you. Did an interview with um, Claudette Zabeda-Wilkins, uh when she first started in, mm-hmm. in El Jardine. And she said, my memories revolve around food. So I like to say that we offer time capsules. You know that feeling when you eat something and it transports you back to your childhood? Whatever it is, I want to offer a glimpse into the past that is looked at fondly. That's what she said going into El Jardine. She's out of El Jardin now. They revamped the menu. They've cut the prices. Her ideals and goals sound very closely aligned to yours. How do you avoid that when price point becomes an issue and profitability becomes an issue and investors want to return on their money and you're trying to maintain some of the goals and ideals you've talked about? Yeah. And so, you know, I think... uh, I think one of the big contrasting thoughts about that initially is one locations, like the cost point in National City compared to Liberty Station, mm-hmm. and being in Liberty Station, the market itself is probably you know I I don't know the actual amount, and Claudette's a good friend of mine, um, and so I don't uh, you know I don't know what the overhead costs look like, but I know the space is like six thousand square feet, you know. 
something like that, you know, with I see other big restaurants opening up like that, it could look very empty or it could look very busy really fast. And so, um, you know, and it has nothing to do with her talent or what she believes and even with the food. Right. Um, has nothing to do with that. And that's my, that's my whole point of this yeah. question is that at some point an investor says – I need more money back. I need to see more money coming in the door. And here, a James Beard award-winning chef, you know, with great ideas and fantastic breath and death, is out of there. Yeah. And they're turning it into a cantina. Yeah. Well, I, that's the scary thing now about, like you asked earlier in the earlier segment, is uh, big restaurant groups, which that is part of a big group. So why can't something else within the group help float? Something like that. And there's a lot of different reasons. Whether, like you said, um, when you're raising funding, it's important to raise funding for the duration, for at least the first two to three years. Most investors, and you see a lot now when month six, they're like, where's my return? And they don't see it, so they want to pull their money out. Exactly. And then, then the restaurant closes. Because I remember a few years ago, and not, well, yeah, a few years ago, if a restaurant came in, you knew it was probably going to be there at least two years. Yeah. And then you'd say, well, if they last to the third year. But you're right now. Restaurants go out of business in six months. Yeah. How can you establish anything in six months? Yeah. And and that's the, the great thing. Um, I have a very great relationship with the developer, Andrew Malik. Uh, I've been living in North Park in one of his buildings the last five years. And he's been, one, like a big proponent, but also a big supporter of myself and my career. And so um, he understands that developing a project like this in National City, the importance and the symbion of the success of the building is also ties into the restaurant and ties into the community. And so we've been able to work out agreements that where it's about the longevity of the business. That's great. And so, um, yeah, it's just without going into details and numbers and things like that. But you you also, I think, too, when people find mentors is that you have to, and investors, too, you have to find investors and mentors that are looking for your best interest in the long haul. Um, that finding people that just say, well, you've done in this year career, what can I get from you? And so um, they want to see you, they want to see me succeed. And I'm very fortunate and uh, for that and grateful. And so... Um, it's just one of those, it's a long time coming and, you know, fortunate that things are kind of just falling in the place that they do. It's, you know, it's That's, unexplainable. I just, uh, you know, as we're moving along, uh, just pieces are coming coming right in. That's great. We're winding down in time a little bit here, and I, and I want to get to an area we had talked, we had looked at briefly. We talked about an environment in a restaurant city in a resort town where cooking schools are closing and where there is at the same time a shortage of chefs. And I'm wondering what we do about that and how much of a factor that is and how that plays into your concept of wanting to pull in chefs of color and women and people from troubled backgrounds. Cause that's where, a lot of cities are having to turn now to find their chefs because they aren't anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, again, like I, it's happening in every city all around the world, actually. Uh, shortage of cooks. I think 10, 15 years ago, you could pull anyone, any cook off the street, and they'll be 
very, very good. And now, like, you're kind of going through people left and right. There's temp agencies for cooks now, and you don't even know what you're getting when they show up, if, even if they show up.、Um, but it kind of goes back to,、um, to longevity. You know, I think、um, some of the things that we hope to create and instill in the restaurants,、uh, again, similar to what New York is, creating four day work weeks versus five day work weeks. I mean,、um, who, you have to have a, a balance in life. And I was always growing up,、uh, I was always told that what you do for a living, how much money you make, and personal time. Are the top three. And if one of those three things is out of balance, then nothing's going to be right. Because you could make all the money you want, you could have all the time at home, but if you hate your job,、uh, it's a hell for you. And so, if, and if one of those things are out of whack, and so how do you create a,、um, an ecosystem within your workspace where it's profitable, yes,、uh, sustainable, but、um, like mental health in a kitchen? How do you make it to where A young cook never sees their family, you know? And、um, that me having two boys, 11 and a five year old, that after I left Consortium, and not just Consortium, but my whole career, to ha- actually have time off, that I was able to make it to his first soccer game this year alone, you know? And so it's, it's tough, you know, working 12, 16 hour days. And You know, on top of that, chefs keep leaving because they don't make enough. Like, even a, a chef right now making 55K, even 65K a year, you know,、um, a medium household costs 700K to purchase a home. And you say, let's go off the 80 20 rule. That's 190K down for a home. What young cook or young chef has 190K to buy a house, you know? And so, There's a lot of big issues and a lot of things that we hope to address and fix within just the workspace that we hope to create and the ecosystem of the restaurants and the concepts that we hope to build. And so,、um, yeah, I mean, I know I'm、uh, alluding to the actual answers to it because it's what I hope to build in my own, but I am very aware of what is happening in our industry and why we're losing. Cooks and, and chefs.、Uh, but a big part is where I've been fortunate enough to find cooks and develop people is through、um, I work in the local community, Olivewood Garden Learning Center, Kitchens for Good, a lot of these programs where I get the youth in middle and high school. And by the time they're ready to go in the workforce, they're ended up calling me for, for jobs, which is really amazing. Well, we're going to call you back once this, once this place opens so we can come and check it out. And when is it going to open?、Uh, so we're slated to open early 2020.、Um, it's, so it's like an 18 to 24 month, sorry, early 2021.、Um, but we actually did sign a lease on a second location,、um, just Caddy Corner across the street on 8th and A.、Uh, in the new food hall, Uh, called Market on 8th.、Um, and we'll be opening up a smaller concept called Wordsmith. It's a、uh, retail shop, 100 square feet. It's a culinary bookstore、uh, retail shop that will home、um, cookbooks, uh, magazines, uh, retail in terms of chefware, spoons, knives. And、um, you know, every big name chef is coming out with a book. So, we'll have a home for them in San Diego to come talk. Well, that'll be great. And we're looking forward to it. We're supporting you.、Uh, it's great to have you come back home. And we're looking forward to your success.、Um, 
You've been on the front burner. We want to thank Philip Esteban for being here today to talk about the new plans he has here in San Diego and National City. And I want to thank you, as always, for listening. And you've been on the front burner. (laughs) 